burial of Jesus, the after drama. And uh, this is a classic example of things that seem to bear no relationship to us, but they bear a lot of relationship to us, as we will see. So we will read verses 54 uh, to the end. Now the centurion, he was over the execution squadron at the cross. And those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus. That was very important to everybody. His disciples had said he was going to rise on the third day. Ain't no way that's going to happen. When they saw the earthquake and the things, the other phenomenon, the spectacular, the preternatural phenomena that were happening, it's not just a centurion, as we know from the parallel accounts, they became not frightened, very frightened, and said, this was the sentiment of the centurion, but all of them, truly, this was the Son of God. They knew some of the issues. This guy was really it. And many women were there looking on from a distance, probably there. Female sensitivity would not allow them to be up so close to all that horror. They had followed Jesus from Galilee. That was quite an entourage from a long way, relatively. They went with him everywhere and the other disciples ministering to him. Take note of these things. Among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. There were three, three there. The latter was sometimes known as Salome, we believe. And when it was evening, another player enters the stage. There came a rich man, rich man, rich man, from Arimathea. His name was Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. But we learn from the parallel accounts, he and Nicodemus were kind of secret service disciples. That all changes. This man came to Pilate because he had a lot of influence. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He could get to him. And he asked for the body of Jesus. We learn from the other accounts that Pilate says, Hi. You mean he's dead already? That's not supposed to be. And uh, yes, he was. And Pilate ordered it, the body, to be given to Joseph. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Well, Mary Magdalene was one of these. She was always on top of everything. Some of you are like that. And she was watching. Nothing was getting past her. She was there. And the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. There's no question about where the grave was. Now, on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, Friday was the preparation. 
The next day, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember that when this fellow was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise again. Can't let there be any whisper of that. Therefore, they said, in order to cut that off, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. What we're afraid of is that his disciples might come and steal him away, and then they'll start spreading this rumor to the people. Uh, He's risen from the dead. That last deception will be worse than the first. Can't let that happen. Pilate said, okay, you have a guard. Go. Make that tomb as secure as you know how, and you can believe they made it secure. They went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So if there's any movement, everybody would know. Well... We're going to talk about the different players in this drama. And every one of them, who they were and what they did, have something to say to us. But I've got a kind of side note. It's really kind of a big note, but I can't dwell too long on it. Once Jesus died, what happened between that moment and his resurrection. Well, we don't have a definitive answer, but we have some answer. I want to go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and then verse 4, 6. Peter says, much later, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you and me to God. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. Next verse. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. What did he do in that interim? Now chapter 4, verse 6. For this reason, the gospel, the good news, was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. That verse is a bit of a mystery. Both, in fact, are. I'm not going to dwell on this one too much. Simply, I don't have time. And secondly, I'm just not totally decided. Both are good reasons. I'm going back to the first about which I'm more decided. This is called the descent of Jesus into hell. It's very controversial. I think I know what that means, and in the context, I feel a little sure as to what it means. So the question I'm dealing with, but not for long, is... What happened in that space of time, the so-called descent of Christ into hell? When our Lord died, gave up his spirit, he, I believe, went immediately into the bowels of the underworld, that place called spirits then in prison. 
you had a whole world of unbelief from the time post-Adam on. They had rejected God and the idols rejected Christ who was to come, though they didn't know all of that. And what I believe happened is that the Lord Jesus in spirit descended into the underworld to the spirits then in prison and in a triumphant cry right to the gates of hell, he declared his victory. That's an awesome thought to me. If you want to know more, you're not going to get it here. I don't know any more than that. But that is one awesome thought to me. Meanwhile, back on center stage on earth, things were happening. I want to talk about the players on the stage, things that are significant, and they're significant to us. First of all, up here in verse 54, we meet this centurion. In the background are the, is a squadron, an execution squadron. They did this work all the time. They were bloody people. They were hard people, <laughs> really hard. As we saw the savagery they exposed Jesus to leading up to and during his crucifixion. But something was going on there, a big time with them. You have the hardness of heart of the Jews. We'll get to that. There's tremendous irony, but here were these pagan Gentiles. And they weren't just pagan Gentiles, but they were brutal Roman soldiers. And, uh, you know, they could, they could, to use modern language, they could shoot somebody just like that and kick them aside. But this guy... This guy hanging up there, all the lead up, all the drama, not a whimper. He was, ah! <laughs> there was none of that, not a whimper. What a man. He was not hurling vindictive. <laughs> vindictive language at those who were mocking him. He was not saying, well, I'll get you. None of that. They were seeing and they were observing. He hung there on the cross and hung there. And all of a sudden, the sky got black. I mean black. Covered the whole country, not the world. The whole country that had rejected him. And then, at some point in there, the earth shook. A lot of earthquakes in that part of the world always have been. But the combination of the blackness, the sudden blackness, which was the silent voice of God, a warning voice, a condemning voice, and then the earth shook. 
big rocks. They're splitting. That was not unknown, but it was a combination of events. And then they didn't get this immediately because they weren't on the site. The veil, which um, we learned from Edersheim, was a very thick veil. It wasn't like a cloth divider around your closet or something. And man, it just split right down the middle. It was God speaking that the way to God was now new and it was in this person. I didn't get all that. But it was a big deal. Centurion got it. And apparently his associates got it. And they were quaking down there at the foot of the cross. I don't know what all they said, but I know they said this. Uh, This is... This is the Son of God. Now, what all theology was involved in that confession, we're not able to say. But what I want to say to you is this, that while his theology was not mature at that point, he knew that this was somebody different and he knew that it wasn't outrageous to say or for him to say that he was the Son of God. They heard the charges. He's right. Let me try to explain that a little bit because sometimes we get the idea that when people come to Christ and they make a confession of Christ in some manner or other, that the confession is not full-orbed, it's not full-blossomed, and it's it's, um, not squared up on all of its corners. Well, I, I don't know whether their faith is real or or not. When our youngest daughter came to her mother, she was only four. Am I right, Oz? Four? She was always a little precocious about spiritual things. And so she had been up, I believe, in our bathroom at the home in which we were then living. And she came down the steps, if I recall. Oz, it could help me here, but we don't have time for this dialogue. She came down the steps and she said, uh, Mommy... I accepted Jesus up there in the bathroom. And her mother went to question her a little bit. I mean, what was her grasp at four years old? And then she told her mother, well, all I know is he stop a stop. Yeah. She got that. Like some of you, when I was, I came to Christ at age eight, I was before the church and just bawling. But don't give me a theological inquisition. I wasn't up to that. But it was kind of like hers. You see what the Spirit of God does, and that's what he did here. He did then what he does now. He breaks in. He opens up our hearts. He takes the wax out of our ears and suddenly we're hearing with different ears. And we don't, 
our faith does not emerge full-orbed. But it's not denying anything and it's ready to accept everything that is right. And it grows it. And it grows it. And it grows it. And I'm sure many of you sitting here can relate to that story. We don't wait. Kids accept Christ, maybe in VBS or some other place. We don't wait until everything is squared up on all four corners and put them through 18 baptism classes. Baptism class is good. But we don't do all that until everything is right. People have gotten into that. No. It's a living seed. And the Spirit of God works that seed. And He waters it. And He works the ground. And it takes root. And if it's real, it grows up. And if it's not real, at some point it flakes out. It's a good thing. Well, the centurion. This was a case of a seed of faith that would mature. There's a big vital sign right there. That it accepts what should be accepted but it will not deny anything that should be accepted. Let's talk about this entourage of Galilean women. They're interesting. It ought to be interesting to you women here. Not just them, but especially them. The text says that they followed Jesus from Jerusalem to the site of his crucifixion. Let's put Luke 8, 2 up here. Also some women who had been cured, get this, cured of evil spirits, they had been expelled, exorcised by Jesus, cured of evil spirits and diseases. They were part of this entourage that went from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Mary, called Magdalena or Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, she was one of those. Probably a woman of the night, at some point up to north, uh, northwest, probably the Sea of Galilee, right around Capernaum. She had met Jesus and he had expelled those multiple demons who were ripping up her life. And then some of these others who are mentioned here. They were very, very attached to Jesus. Who wouldn't be after he had done all of this for them? But I want to note something. Listen carefully to what I say. I believe that it is fair to say and I have evidence for it beyond this, that women as a gender form stronger attachments than men as a whole. I think a lot of men would agree with that. It's remarkable, the attachment of mothers, uh, but not only to children, but to others as well. Now, obviously, this is not an absolute. God made the female gender despite a certain Supreme Court nominee who doesn't know what a woman is and how to define it. 
We do. And uh, the fact is that God made women generally that way, and that's a good thing in principle. But any virtue can become a vice if those attachments are misdirected or wrongly prioritized. But here is something all devout women can learn from this example. These Galilean women were first and foremost attached to Jesus as a person, and they were devoted to serving him and his 12 disciples. Uh, They were some women of means. You know, sometimes folks got men and women, God gives you means. And he gives you means to do things with that will honor God. There's always the risk that that characteristic of attachment can be misplaced. The husband or the children or the job or especially, oh yes, the local church. I don't know what churches would do without women. Wouldn't do much. Women are vital, always have been, always have been. And you even see it in the New Testament. Vital to its health and to its progress. But ladies, it's up to us, up to you, to examine yourselves and make sure that you're, you're one of these three Marys. Your devotion is not to an organization. That's good. We love it when you love the church. But we're not about this local church. We're about Christ. The church is just a platform from which we serve Christ. And just make sure in all your devoted service, and all you do, you're like these women. They were loyal to Jesus. And they were loyal to his other disciples. But they went around ministering to them because they didn't have any other job. They didn't have any other means. And one of them was the wife of Herod Stewart. She had clout and she had means. And she wanted to make sure that the needs of Jesus and his band were taken care of. So it's up to you, like these women, to make sure that you always examine yourself in your service. And make sure that your Christianity does not degrade into churchianity or into some personality cult or family cult before devotion to Jesus. For example, some people, some ladies, man, we understand why you love your family. I love my family. But we can't love our families before we love Christ. Can't love your husband before you love Christ. With these ladies... He was supreme. Then, secondly, thirdly, we come to this figure, Joseph of Arimathea. The text tells us that he was rich. He was an influential aristocrat. He was in the Jewish Senate, which means the Sanhedrin. He's a man who had a voice. We learn from the parallel accounts that he, plus Nicodemus, we meet in John chapter 3, They were really impressed with Jesus. Uh, They thought he was the real deal. But like a lot of people, they were too much influenced by people, other men. 
men or women of influence. They had a very, very powerful place and prestige in Jewish society. And if they came out too loudly and identified with Jesus, well, there was more of them than there were of these guys, and they were going to come down on them all fours, maybe even kick them out and lose all of their prestigious place. So they kept it down low. Jesus doesn't want his disciples playing it cool and keeping it down low. He doesn't want you going to work or in the neighborhood just kind of being real quiet about who you belong to. But you know, he's gracious, he's merciful, and he's compassionate, and he lets people grow into their suits. He knew these guys. He doesn't beat them over the head. He knew that in them, in Joseph and also in Nicodemus, he knew there was a real seed of faith that the Spirit of God had planted there. And he went on doing his business, teaching the Word and doing his signs and wonders and just let it grow. And then when all of this went down, they saw it. They, I don't think, had gotten the fact that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, but in death, they said, that's it. Sometimes that happens to us. At work, the neighborhood, schools, whatever, sometimes it just happens to us. And we say, that's it. I'm not going to be silent any longer. I don't care what the cost is. I'm going to declare my loyalty to Jesus. And the only way Nicodemus or Joseph, but Nicodemus was with him in all of this, the only way they knew to do it, well, at least, I mean, he's dead, but he was of God. At least we can honor him in death. And that's what they did. Your heart's always in the right place when you want to honor Jesus. Sometimes we can do it in the wrong way. But they did it in the right way. And one way we know they did it in the right way. If you go to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, I believe. Can you put her up there, guys? Yeah. This is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. Seven centuries before any of this went down. Did you hear me? Seven centuries before any of this went down. It's one of the great messianic passages in all the Bible. Among other things that went before he, referring to the Messiah, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Crucified with him were what? Bandits, thieves on either side. And with what? the rich in his death. Wow. Though he had done no violence, nor any deceit was in his mouth, completely unjust, he was assigned with the rich in his death. Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man. Nicodemus too. But Joseph had just happened to build a new tomb, carved in a rock, very expensive, probably meant to be his own tomb. And in there, he placed the body of Jesus. 
There's debate, has been for centuries, about the exact spot of the, some of you have been there with us, the exact spot of his burial. There's Gordon's tomb, and then there's the one that uh, Roman Catholics claim, and they may be right, uh, is the spot. Constantine's mother went there in the 300s to check out these spots. It doesn't matter. But there it was. Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus couldn't have planned that. Joseph couldn't plan that. He had no way of knowing he could even get the bo- even get the body. Well, he fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah fifty three nine. He's an example of the insuppressible growth of faith, and he's an example of the truth, Joseph. That the tale of the tape, in terms of genuineness of faith, is not where one starts but where one finishes in the journey. People do not always start so very well. But in the grace of God, the Spirit of God stimulates that faith, and it grows, and it's nurtured. And then, wow. <laughs> Had an example of that one or two times. It was about the mid-90s. I went home one Sunday afternoon, Phone rang, picked up the phone. Jimmy Andrews, is that you? I said, yes. I could tell it was another hillbilly on the other end, a fellow hillbilly. <laughs> he said, this is Mike McGee. said, I just, Mike McGee. I wanted to kill him. Not on the phone. But when I was in that first church, I got out like John does with all the kids and I played football with him and oh, he was a mouth. And he didn't know the Lord from a bunny rabbit. He was just in the youth group like a lot of kids. Uh, but he was so mouthy. And uh, I just wanted to take him. He was probably 17 or 18 years old and I wanted to take, I was about 26. Wanted to take him by the throat, wring it like my grandma used to do the neck of a chicken and throw him away. And finally he just got tired of the group and just went his own way. What am I doing hearing from him? Well, Brother Jimmy, I just wanted to tell you how appreciative I am of all you did in my life. What I do in your life, I don't want to kill you. He he went on and he said, I just want you to know that I'm still in Polka Baptist Church. you got to be kidding me. I'm singing in the choir. I'm doing all of this. I'm loving it and I want to thank you. Some people don't start well. He hadn't started at all when I left. But then the Spirit of God comes along and he does this and he does that and exposes them to this and exposes them to that. And then, like Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus, somewhere they get it. And they grow into their shoes. Next, we come to Pilate. We've seen him before. 
Now he's on the foreground again. Some have tried to make a sympathetic figure out of Pilate, but there's no room for that. The governor of Judea hated the enemies of the Jews, but not for the right reasons. I mean, he hated the enemies, Jesus' enemies, who were the Jews. This man was an anti-Semite before such a term was ever known. He was on to their evil motives in wanting to take out Jesus, and he wanted to do everything he could to deliver Jesus, although he was a very unjust man himself. Anyway, he wanted to deliver them from him from their crucifying malice. He tried to manipulate things, we've seen that, so that he might get a win-win situation for himself. He also wanted to cover his backside from his wife, who said, I had nothing to do with that righteous man. I had a dream because of him. Lay off. But he had real political problems first in Rome. And right here with the Jews, said, we're going to tell Caesar that you let somebody go who was threatening to be a king. Ooh, my position's not very secure. So eventually he tried to wash his hands symbolically and say, I'm innocent of this man's blood. No, you're not, Jack. And then he turned Jesus over to their malice. No, he's not a sympathetic figure. He's a weak and cowardly figure who would kill his own mother or wife to save his own hide. He would throw justice to the wind if it threatened to give him trouble or the loss in his own career. Here's the deal for us. God gave him a chance to take a stand for conscience sake. Pilate saw enough of Jesus to realize this was no ordinary man. He saw enough, he knew it, to know that Jesus was innocent of all charges. But in the crunch, he took the safer, a lot of people do. Safe route, safe route in this world. He made the easy choice for a man of power. And he trampled on his conscience to the point that it was no longer morally serviceable or functional. His conscience was deaf and dumb by now. Pilate can no longer feel its rebuke. The deed is done. Eventually, he himself went down in disgrace, political disgrace, and committed suicide. We are told. What does that have to do with you and me? The Bible warns us, keep a good conscience. Conscience ignored is in the end, conscience impaired. And conscience consistently impaired is a conscience ultimately useless. It's a very delicate moral instrument. It's your moral altimeter. You've got to watch how you play that conscience. Guard it. Don't abuse it. Keep close accounts with God. There's more I would like to say, but don't have time to say. Just guard your conscience. Pilate's conscience by now is dead. Morally hardened. Beyond, beyond remedy. The heedless are now hopeless. One of the things my dad often warned me, and I've told you about this before, but I've never forgotten it. It's the way he would do. Bud, don't 
mess with God. Conscience. Fear God, which means revere God's warnings. Don't take them lightly. And don't ever treat God as if he doesn't exist. Finally, the Jewish leaders enter stage left in sorry parade. They're all worried about Jesus, something happening that gives his disciples some excuse to steal his body and get word out there that he actually did rise from the dead. They're beyond hope. There's a lesson here. With great privilege goes great accountability. With greater light comes greater responsibility for what one does with that light. Light rejected gradually, except for the intervening mercy of God, gradually blinds the eyes. You can't go out here on a sunny day without damage and just look up at the light, the sun, without doing damage to your eyes. But people do it all the time. Every bit of light you receive is dangerous if you don't do anything with it. You don't receive Jesus because you won't. And then you don't receive Jesus because you can't. Blind. And in 70 AD, for that generation, the chickens came home to roost. And there was never anything like it. That's happening in America, in the Western world, in mega fashion. There's stupidity growing in this country like wildfire in a dried terrain. Mindless outrages. Blindness thicker than smoke. How could possibly people think like that? I ask myself every day. Ukraine. Well, some talking head says... I'm not sure that's in American interest. You idiot. What about human interest? How stupid could you be? What about world interest? And what about justice? What about godlessness run amok in this country? What about immorality and amorality proliferating like cockroaches in a dirty kitchen? I don't know about you, but I say all the time, where is the outrage? But we're like frogs in a tea kettle. We hear a little today. Oh, that's bad. A little tomorrow. Oh, that's bad. A little the next day. Oh, that's bad. A little the next day. Oh, whatever. What about abortion going to infanticide? Oh, I can't believe that. And more. Oh, I can't believe that. Oh, I. 
Well, I just guess that's the times. God is not mocked. He will not allow this world to forever insult his son, just like he didn't allow the Jews in that generation to get away with it. In his time, and that time may be near, he will answer our generation, and when he does, it will be loud and clear. This is time for you, like the Roman centurion, to acknowledge Jesus and say, this is truly the Son of God, and get on the right side of history and the right side of the judgment of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for all of your goodness, all of your kindness, for, for your redemptive work in Christ Jesus. Lord, we feel so weak, we cannot save anybody, we cannot turn anybody's mind. Only the Spirit of God can do that. We cannot soften a heart. We cannot open ears. Only the Spirit of God can do that. But we pray that you'll take the Scriptures and what we learn and glean from them to help that happen. We ask it in his name. Amen.